Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. If you want to turn to your Bibles in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Good to see you all this morning. God is good all the time. So someone, I I forget who, but Stephanie was telling me, someone had asked her uh, not very long ago, um, something along the lines of, you know, how, do you, how did you feel about becoming a preacher's wife or marrying a preacher? And she replied, she said, I didn't set out to marry a preacher, which was true. And I didn't set out to be a preacher. As a matter of fact, and I may have told you this story before, I wanted to be just like my Uncle Bo. I wanted to be just like my granddaddy. And that is, I wanted to be a canine officer with Metro Nashville Police Department. Granddaddy, back in the uh, mid to early 70s, was one of the founders of the canine department with Metro Nashville. And his canine, Bam Bam, was the very first canine that the department had. Of course, Uncle Bo, when he retired, uh, he was the head trainer of the canine division. And his last canine that he worked with was Apache. So he had different ones uh, there on the family farm. But I really liked what they did, and every year we would go to the canine trials at Davison Academy in Madison, Tennessee. And I remember the first year that Granddaddy came after Graham passed away. He, he never veered far from home uh, while she was living. Of course, she had multiple sclerosis and couldn't get out, was bedridden. So he was always there with her. But the first year after she passed away that we had the canine trials, Granddaddy came, and I was glad to be able to sit with him. And so essentially the officers would run their canines through various drills. They all did the same thing. And it was mainly intended to see uh, how good the handler was, how good the canine was. Uh, But there were a couple of times that they would, at the end of the trial, they would put on an exhibition, if you will, to show us what they can really do. A couple that I remember, and I thought this was hilarious, Uncle Bo, he always had that uh, Tom Selleck mustache. Uh, you know, very full. And I say that because on this one exhibition, he was pushing a stroller. He had on a, a, a gown of some, or a dress of some sort, and he had a handbag that he was holding out like this. And 
walked across in the middle of the football field and uh, they had a guy run up behind him and, and grab the purse and he yelled something and his canine prince was in the baby stroller and that thing hopped out, vroom, went and got the guy. So that was the coolest thing ever, right? Uh, the last one that I remember was they cleared the entire track in the field and they simulated a chase. And of course you have one running and a, 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 a unit behind with, with the sirens going and the lights and everything. Well then the helicopter comes in and before the helicopter touches down at that time, uh, Uncle Bo had Forrest uh, and for, like Gump, Forrest Gump. And so Forrest, before the helicopter landed, leaped out and chased after the guy and apprehended him and Uncle Bo hopped out of the helicopter. It was just the coolest thing when you're like a, a 12, 13 year old kid. You're like, that is so neat. And because we lived on the family farm, I could go down 100 yards to Uncle Bo and Aunt Lisa's, and um, sometimes he would have Prince, who was his, the first canine I remember, uh, Prince or, or, or Forrest or Apache or Duke, any of those out, and it was just real neat. I remember Uncle Bo pouring a cup of food for, uh, I think it was Prince at the time, and, and he walked out and he shut the gate, and Prince just sat looking at his bowl of food. You and I know that as soon as you, most of our dogs, we have to like shove them off and guard the bowl just to pour the food. No, Prince, he sat and he waited. And I, I was watching because Uncle Bo was just walking around doing stuff, not minding the canine. And I'm sitting there going, that is so odd. And I said, Uncle Bo, how come he's not eating the food? He said, I've not given him permission to. And Uncle Bo said, free dog. He went right in after that. It was the neatest thing. So growing up in a family of policemen, uh, I wanted to be one as well. Continue the family tradition. One day I was up at Graham and Granddaddy's and we, you know, we used to go up and split wood for Granddaddy. We would also uh, mow the lawn because he had COPD and he, if, if he got a little worked up, his breathing sounded like a horrible rattle. So we would always go up there and mow and take care of splitting wood for the wood burning stove. And afterwards we'd always go in and you know, just a quick visit and go on. This one time uh, we were in there and Granddaddy was seated at his regular spot, right? Every, every man has his chair or that's how it used to be. I don't know if that still applies, but anyway, we were talking about something and Granddaddy said, have you ever read that? And he pointed to a plaque that was on the wall. And I said, no, sir. He said, go over there and read it. And so I went over. And in 1974, he was involved in a shootout. And the results of which is he was given an award by the Chamber of Commerce that I think was Citizen of the Year or something along those lines. But I remember reading it and it read just like a Hollywood movie scene. And you can look up in the Tennessean, and I did, uh, Friday, January 11th, 1974, the title of the article, he thought he was a goner. And it's got a picture and it tells the whole story. But essentially, Granddaddy was on Charlotte Avenue and there was, it was early morning and there was someone in the liquor store and it just looked suspect. So he pulls up and he radios for backup and he gets out and he walks in the door and he hears glass shattering in the back. And there's a guy behind the counter and he asked him, what are you doing here? 
And he said, man, I just came in to get some whiskey and nobody's here. And he took his revolver out and ordered him down. And about the time he ordered him down, someone came out with a shotgun from, or excuse me, a rifle from the back, aimed at him. And so he heard glass behind him break. And he, at that point, the guy is shot at him. So he returns fire all the while backing out toward his car because those revolvers don't carry a lot of ammunition like what handguns do today. So he's backing out, returning fire. He gets his door open. He gets to his shotgun using his door and his, his unit as cover. He begins returning fire with his shotgun. And then around that time, help arrives. I remember reading the story of that. And no sooner than I finished reading it, I looked over because, you know, I'd only ever known granddaddy. He's, he was about this tall. He was what we'd call vertically challenged but he had more than enough attitude to make up for what he lacked in height. But I remember reading that and thinking, my granddaddy is a hero. Every little boy and girl needs somebody to look up to. Someone that can be a hero figure. And my granddaddy was that, and that's what I wanted to do with my life. But God had another plan. I remember the first time that my interest was piqued in ministry. Me and mom and dad had, had gone to Biloxi, Mississippi to work with a small congregation uh, in a little mission trip, I guess you could say. This congregation was very rural. All of the kids that were there, their daddies either farmed or were truck drivers. That's all there was to do where they lived. That's how remote it was in Miss, Mississippi. So we were down there and daddy would give the devotionals. I led the singing. Uh, Mom made little gift things or whatever. And the last night we were there, we probably out of the 22 kids that were there, I think 17 or 18 of them wanted to put on Christ. And we walked across the street to the ocean and immersed those kids. And I remember seeing that and just being in awe not at what we had done, but at the effect that the Word of God had had in their lives. And I remember thinking, man, this is one of the greatest feelings ever. And then not long after that, I go with our youth group from the church that I grew up and we go to a retreat in Gatlinburg and we get back that Sunday night and, and, and uh, uh, that Sunday night, about three of them wanted to put on Christ too because of the retreat and, and, and the studying and the singing and the fellowship that we had. And I remember how great that felt. And so it wasn't that I abandoned the dreams that I had. It's just that the Lord was turning my emphasis, my attention somewhere else. And as that interest grew and I became so involved with the church, I began thinking, you know, if I were able to do this, maybe I could do a lot of good for the Lord. And that's ultimately, a, I know that was a long story, but that's the short version of it as to how I came to be in ministry. I never set out to be a preacher. Stephanie never intended to marry a preacher, but that's how it is and that's where we are. Now, I, I tell you all that because when you get to chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, please turn there in your Bibles if you're not there already. I don't know if Timothy ever intended to be a preacher. I don't know if he had dreams to do something else, but he served the Lord and he was the protege of Paul and in serving God and having Paul as his mentor, he is in ministry. 
But ministry isn't always what it's cut out to be. Now, I'm just going to be real with you. If I had it to do over again, I'd do it the exact same way. There have been times that I've wanted to quit. There have been times that I've tried to quit. Uh, and I will say that these were before coming to Glendale. Okay, so uh, I don't want you to take that as a reflection on the ministry here. Actually, I've told people, I said, this is the best ministry that I've ever had in comparison to the others. And that's not to say the others were horrid, but there were moments and people in those previous congregations that really made life difficult. And Timothy is being apprised of all the issues that exist at this church. And now Paul gives him a warning. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Let me touch on latter times. A lot of time when we hear that phrase, uh, we usually hear it in a certain context. And, and I've got some friends that believe differently on this than I do, but they will say because of things that are happening on the G.O. political stage, they'll say, we're entering the end times. Well, not entirely correct. On Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, as the apostles were speaking in languages for which they'd been untrained, Peter is explaining what's happened, and he says, this is what is spoken by the prophet. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. When you talk about the last days, Paul says, Joel has already spoke of this. We have now entered those last days. This is what you're seeing. So the last days or the latter times isn't some period of time immediately before Christ comes. It, it rather speaks to an era uh, we are no longer under the patriarchal age. We are no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. We are now under the new covenant that Jesus Christ inaugurated by shedding his blood on the cross. And that is described as the latter days. John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come by which we know that it's the last hour. Now, when a lot of folks talk about the end times and whatnot. They, they envision a period brought about by geopolitical issues, and they will speak about an antichrist, and, and they have a, a system of belief. But John speaks about many antichrists, not just one person. So I think it's important to understand that. When you look at the time that Paul is describing, these are things that we see even today, because we are living in those latter times. There are people that depart from the faith. They give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Any faith or religion that isn't rooted in God and Jesus Christ that may be idolatrous, it is a deceiving spirit and a doctrine 
of demons. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians. He says there really are no gods. They are just demons that have, that have blinded the nations and led them astray. Verse 2, they, they speak lies and hypocrisy, having their own consciences seared with a hot iron. And here's what they do. They forbid to marry and they command to abstain from foods that God has created to be received with thanksgiving. So if, if you look at any Christ-oriented group and they forbid marriage and they forbid certain foods, Paul says, Timothy, that's not the faith. That's not the faith. But it's no wonder because their consciences are seared. So growing up, we had a wood-burning stove. That was our form of heat. And daddy, that you have the outer part that you'd open, then you have the metal part that you'd open to put the, uh, put the wood in. Daddy's hands were so callous because he's worked at a lumber yard his whole life. He could touch that bare iron part with his bare hand and open it. Now, I would try to do that too. God was like, that's cool. No, it, I didn't have the calluses like what my dad's hand were. It was so hard that it didn't affect him. Now, these people's minds are so hard, their consciences are seared. Now, look at verses 6 through 11. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable in all things. Having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach. Because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe these things, command and teach. I want you to notice in verse 6 how Paul uses the word instruct. Instruct the brethren in these things. Then in verse 11 he says command. Notice the difference. Begin with instruction. Okay, here's the will of God. Here's what God says. Here's what you and I ought to understand, how we ought to live our lives. If it gets to a point, command. And you know, there's going to be a lot of idle chatter. There's going to be profane and wives fa old wives' fables. Um, but if you are nurtured in sound doctrine, you don't have to engage in that. You don't have to worry about it because you know. But when those things come, don't partake. Just, just let it go by. But make sure the brethren know too. Make sure the brethren are trained in godliness. Y'all heard of this workout that people do called CrossFit? If you ever meet somebody who does CrossFit, you'll know because they like to tell you about it. And so I've seen videos of what they do and I'm like, Y'all are paying to do farm work. You go flipping tractor tires and all these, throwing stuff over. I'm like, you grab a bell of hay and throw that thing up in the loft. 
You got a tractor that needs a tire change, you can flip that wheel. I mean, it's exact, it's farm work, but they make it look so appealing and they tie me in all this. Okay, you want to be CrossFit, go be CrossFit. Work out, lift weights, be in shape. Nothing wrong with that at all. Bodily exercise profits a little, Paul says. But godliness profits in all things. I don't care what your deadlift record is. I don't care what your squat record is. Paul says, but how are you when it comes to godliness? I felt so good when I was in high school. I can't do this now, but, uh, you know, joints ache. Now, as you get older, your joints, they're like, huh, what are you doing? You know, we were working on rebuilding our chicken pen, you know, because critters had just gotten too many of my hens and my egg production went tanked. So we were out there last Sunday between services, me and Stephanie and Cole, and I was driving them like an Egyptian taskmaster would a Hebrew in old Egypt. And we work for about two or three hours, and then we, we come in and shower and get cooled down, drink water, rehydrate and all that. And by the time we were coming to church Sunday night, I'm like, man, my body hurts. And so the next morning, I was like, well, I'm going to go work on the coop some more, worked on it some more. And I, I thought if you worked a little harder, it wouldn't hurt as much, but that, that's the wrong way to look at it. But now when I was a junior in high school, I was in a strength and conditioning class, and the center of the football team was in there as well. Now, he could bench press like it was nobody's business, and I, was, I couldn't do that much. But we get over to squat. He, he was able to squat 300 pounds. That's a lot of weight. I was able to get 335. I was like, <laughs> I felt good because this is a big dude. And, you know, I look like a stream being next to him. So I felt good about that. But what, what does it really matter? What does it really matter? My max, our builds, it has nothing to do with eternity. And I think there can be profit in bodily exercise and various other things that we do, but godliness is the emphasis for the Christian. Stress that, make make that central. Because when you do the work of ministry as Timothy was going to do, that's what he needed to have developed, godliness. All right, verses 12 through 16. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to the reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you'll save both yourself and those who hear you. There's the responsibility that Timothy had. You're not just doing this for your own sake. You're doing it for the sake of those also who hear you. You need to be trained in godliness. And don't let anyone look down on your youth. Uh, When you look back through Scripture, there are plenty of young folks that served the Lord and they did a fine job of it. There are plenty of older folks who served the Lord and did a fine job of it. Now, 
with youth comes intensity, passion, that sometimes is taken away as we age and we become a little more negative, a little bit cynical. And we look at those that are younger and we go, well, you've just, you're young, you're young, right? How many times you heard that? Oh, you're young, you're young, just wait, just wait, right? Some of that may be true. But don't let anyone despise your youth. Be an example in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. Age is just a number. King Josiah was very young when he became king. And he probably is the most well-written of king beyond David. And he was young. David himself, when he was selected to be king, was a young shepherd out in the fields. Joseph was real young when he was head of Potiphar's household and when he became the second in charge of Egypt. Daniel and his companions were all young. Youth has a lot to bring to the table. Yes, there are inexperiences, but rather than downing someone because of their youthfulness, let's just take the good qualities they have and learn from that ourselves, we who are older. When I came here six years ago, you know, I've always had this I've always had this condition where people think I'm younger than I am. I guess I look like a baby, and I've had people tell me that. Um, that's not a bad thing, because as I get older, I'm still going to look young. So there's a plus side. But when you are young and you look young, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. So I remember the first year that I was here, you know, a few of you would ask, how old are you exactly? And I, ha- I wanted to, you know, 33, 33. I was 33. I'm 39 now. If you count the time in the womb, I'm 40 if you want to count it that way. But, you know, sometimes when things are put in context, that number isn't as insignificant. So when people would ask, how old are you? I said, I'm the same age that Thomas Jefferson was when he drafted the Declaration of Independence, and I'm the same age that Jesus was when he was crucified on the cross. That's how I would answer. I thought it was pretty clever myself. Because... The entirety of the time that I've spent in ministry, the youthfulness has always been something that has worked against me. I know and understand why Paul says what he says to Timothy. And, you know, it's okay. Being a minister sometimes has its challenges. Sometimes it can be a very lonely life. And a lot of people know you and you them. They care for you. You care for them. But everybody has their circles their families, their friends, and sometimes you are included and sometimes you're not. If you're fortunate enough, you have friends and the sad thing is that your wife is called the preacher's wife, your kids are called the preacher's kids. There's no other profession on the face of the earth that is used to define a person's spouse or children. Think about it. That's the preacher's wife. That's the pre- no. That's Stephen's wife. Those are Stephen and Stephanie's children. Stephen just happens to be a preacher. And the wife and the children make sacrifices that not everybody else has to. Our children knew that they would be limited when it comes to playing sports because anything to do with a Sunday or a Wednesday, that's for God. And there's no ball or goal or 
whatever that's more important than God. I know not everybody feels that way, but it is what it is. So they've wanted to make baseball, softball players, and I'd say, okay. But if anything's ever on a Sunday or a Wednesday, you're not going to be there because we're going to be in church. That's just how it is. What I most dislike about it, among many things, though I wouldn't change a thing, is that it can be difficult to make a connection with other people that isn't just the preacher-Christian relationship, a true, genuine friendship. That can, be, that can be hard to do, not only for the minister, his wife. It can be hard for her. It can be hard for his children. Ministry has its challenges, and sometimes a congregation will put expectations on the minister that not even Jesus could have fulfilled. Every sermon should be a winner. Every member should be happy. Every doctrinal question should be cleared up. Every program should be successful. Every minister should always be available. Every worship service should meet everyone's needs. You're supposed to have 20 years of experience and the wisdom of an old man by the time you're 30. But remember, ministers are there at your worst moments, many of you. and best moments. I tell you that to say simply thank you for not being unrealistic. Thank you for giving the grace to me that I wish we would give to one another that we desire from God. Thank you. I've told you the ugly of it and I can tell you this, I've not dealt with that here. And th but there are moments that you become discouraged and let me tell you what I do. I've got a drawer in my desk that has nothing in it other than letters, cards that you've given me. This one is from April 14th of last year. Mr. Lawson Housden drew a picture of me preaching. I've still got it. Let me show you. And I just picked out a few. I didn't bring the whole drawer, trust me. I love this one. Where are the Webbers? Over there. Point. Okay. Benson made me a little drawing, and he says, Dear Mr. Stephen, I trust you because you teach what the Bible says. I'll show you can trust me by listening to your sermon. Sincerely, Benson. And then he drew me and him, and we're holding hands. Isn't that precious? And I'm not trying to <laughs> embarrass anybody. Here's a nice little drawing. We love you, Katie McKeel. How about that? Isn't that wonderful? This is one of the most recent ones. It's also one of my favorites from Juvenile. Stephen Hunter will wear orange to my funeral and I may raise up out of the casket to protest. Now, I'm a Tennessee fan and she was an Alabama fan and we managed to still love one another and get on. And here's the last one I'll share this with you. 
Stephen, thank you so much for officiating our wedding. We really appreciate the love and support. P.S. Thank you for not wearing your kilt, Neely and Zach. I kept threatening her, say, I'll wear my kilt if you want to. Uh, no, we're okay. Everybody has to have something to fall back on when you're greatly discouraged. Ask yourself the question, why did I even begin to do this? When it gets low and you're ready to throw in the towel, why did you even start to do this? In my case, it's because I love the Lord and I want to I do good. I want life to have meaning. I want to be able to help people in some way or somehow. Now, how can you apply that in your context? And remember, no matter how bad it gets, there are people that will always love you, that will always support you, that will always be in your corner. So your service in the Lord, be it in the church or be it wherever your workplace is or in your family, is a service worth rendering. It's a labor of love. But even in that labor of love, we take heed to ourselves first so that we can better serve others as a result of that. So I want to invite you this morning, if you have never put on Jesus in baptism by faith, to come forward. We're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement. Hopefully, it will encourage you to obey the gospel if you've not. But if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you're willing to confess that, I tell you, there's no safer place to do it than in the assembly of the brethren. But if you're a Christian who you need the prayers of the church or you need God's forgiveness because you've not been living faithfully, we'll be glad to attend to you. However we can help spiritually, if you have a need, come forward while we stand and sing.